Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by Neurobloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Cassandra Lee Quave. Uh, she's an associate professor, part of the Department of Dermatology at Emory University School of Medicine. We're going to talk about a book that she has put out uh, called The Plant Hunter, a Scientist's Quest for Nature's Next Medicines. So we're going to talk about that in addition to uh, maybe some bacterial quorum sensing and biofilm production, which I think will be super cool. So uh, Cassandra, thanks for coming. Hey, thanks so much for having me. If you would, tell me a bit about your background. How did you get interested in plant medicine and bacteria and biofilms? Yeah, it was a it was a long and winding path, um, as I'm sure many scientists have experienced. For, for me, it really started in early childhood. Um, I spent a lot of time outdoors as a kid climbing trees, looking at plants, but I also got really interested in microbiology with a third grade science fair project where I was looking at all the microbes that live in different bodies of water from pond water to ditch water and so on. And, you know, those things plus an emerging love for medicine, um, as I got older, really all came together and coalesced into what I do today of looking for, you know, molecules from nature that can help us fight off um, pathogenic um, bacteria. Oh, okay. So a little bit more about that before we get into the book. Um, so you're looking what what kind of bacteria you're looking to counteract and where are these bacteria active? Is it in our guts? You know, can you say a little bit more about your research? Yeah. So I'm really interested in the microbes that we find on the skin and especially those that are implicated in skin and soft tissue infections and in deeper tissue and kind of chronic wound infections. So we do a lot of work on what are known as the escape pathogens. Um, this is a group of organisms that's known to be broadly drug resistant um, and are problematic um, for treatment in the clinic. But we do a lot of work, especially on Staphylococcus aureus and on MRSA or methicillin resistant Staph aureus. We work on Klebsiella pneumoniae, on Acinetobacter bomani. And we've recently kind of expanded our breadth to also look at fungi that impact skin health, um, including Canada albicans and other non-albicans uh, species of Canada, including Canada auris, which has quite a high mortality rate um, if it becomes systemic. 
Well, are these uh, bacteria native to people's skins or do they only arise when someone has a skin problem? Where do they come from? Yeah, so some of these originate in the environment, like Acinetobacter is something that you find in the soil. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why it became it, it's problematic for kind of deeper tissue wounds, especially for um, anyone that has kind of a, a deep tissue wound with soil exposure. For staff, I mean, around 30% of people carry staff in their in their nose, and we can colonize um, different parts of our body from that kind of natural reservoir. And we have other species of staph that, that live on our skin. These are known as coagulase, negative staph, staphylococci, including staphylococcus epidermidis. And so there's, there's, we're coated in bacteria, right? And oftentimes most bacteria don't cause us any problems, but when they get into the wrong environment, such as in, into your tissues, um, that's where we, we can start to see some problems arise. Well, how do they get into your tissues? What are the circumstances in which that'll happen? Um, so, I mean, it, it's, it can be something as simple as a scratch, you know, before the antibiotic era emerged, um, something as simple as a small injury in the garden could result in a death sentence because we didn't have the therapies then to really fight these infections that we do today. At the same time, there were lots of examples of traditional systems of medicine that did use kind of natural therapies to deal with these types of small infections that can become bigger problems. But still today, when you look at the numbers of hospitalizations and serious um, infections, you know, staph infections are still pretty high up there in the numbers of, of, of problems that they cause ranging from bone infections to skin infections, you know, bloodstream infections, heart infections, and, and so on and so on. So that's one of the reasons that we're really interested in, in looking for new solutions, um, different ways of, of getting at treating staph infections. Well, have you identified, I'm sure people have identified the native bacteria that are there in the skin that hopefully act to protect it and protect the integrity of our bodies, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's known as the skin microbiome. And as I mentioned, our bodies are coated with microbes, including bacteria, but also fungi and viruses. And, you know, what's really interesting is that everyone has their own kind of signature of skin microbiota, and that signature changes throughout your lifetime. So a baby's skin is going to have a different set of organisms living on it than a teenager will, or an elder adult, or a pregnant woman. Um, so these, these kind of, the composition of the skin microbiome changes over, over your lifetime. And it also differs from site to site. So if you think about, you know, the reasons why your, your forearm doesn't smell like an armpit, that has to do with some of the microbes that live on your forearm versus your armpit. I like to think of it as kind of like, you know, a, a dry desert ecosystem on your forearm versus like the humid, moist jungle in your armpit. And all that is, is basically you're, you're creating different ecosystems for these microbes to survive and thrive in um, based on those different body sites. Yeah, no, that makes, makes a lot of sense. So have you or I don't know, I guess there's been a lot of uh, studying of, of open wounds or wounds where, you know, pathogenic bacteria get in. Does that mean that uh, there's those bacteria that those wounds never heal or, you know, what's the consequence of them getting in? Yeah, wound, wound care is an interesting space, you know, especially important for our elderly population. 
Um, I'm an amputee. So a lot of the people that I encounter when I'm at my leg man's office or my prosthetist office are diabetic patients that have lost a limb because of diabetic foot ulcers and kind of chronic non-healing wounds. Now we know that microbes like staph and also pseudomonas play a really big role um, in colonizing that wound bed and preventing some of the re-epithelialization or the, the skin from growing back and covering up that wound. But it really has a lot more to do with supply of blood to those different tissues. Because when you have that kind of um, within in, in diabetics, late stage diabetes, you get a reduction in the amount of blood flow to the distal parts of your body. So to your, to your feet in particular. And so you don't have that kind of immune system mechanism to go in and clean up infections to deliver medicines or antimicrobial peptides that our own bodies make to the wound site. And then of course the bacteria that, that kind of thrive in that wound environment don't help things either. But yeah, there, there are definitely a number of challenges with kind of chronic non-healing wounds. And at the same time, I think there's a lot of promise. There's a lot of innovation in that space. I've been really interested to see where things have gone with medicated um, topical honeys, um, that have been used to treat some of these, but also again, going back to traditional medicine, the work that we do with local communities and, and even diving back into literature, going back several hundred years, you know, we can see evidence of how certain plants can be prepared into um, topical poultices as therapies to treat these types of wounds. And, and that's a really interesting, I think, perspective to, to think about as we look for new solutions. So your book is, is it going along these same lines or is it, uh, it sounds like it's veering off more into plant medicine. Uh, how did the concept for your book arise and how does that like interlace with your, uh, your research? Yeah. So the plant hunter is a science memoir. It's my autobiography of my journey um, in becoming a scientist and my journey in the search for new therapies to treat these really um, oftentimes deadly um, infections that, that we currently battle. And so in the book, I take readers through kind of the early days of where I had science was, you know, sparked as an interest. Again, going back to science fair, I probably talked too much about science fair. I was a huge science fair nerd in school. I loved, I loved it so much. And it really helped me kind of get on this trajectory towards a career in science. Um, and then I take people on journeys through some of the different places where I've worked. So yes, I'm interested in my, my strength is really in the early discovery space. So the identification of novel chemicals that we're using to explore as possible avenues to develop new therapies to treat these highly drug resistant infections. But these chemicals originate in plants that have been used in traditional systems of medicine. And so in the book, I take readers into the field with me on some of these early expeditions. My first big expedition was in the Peruvian Amazon as a 21 year old, you know, senior in college. And from there, I went to Italy where I learned about um, healing through a different lens, very different from um, Amazonian shamanism, but never, nevertheless, plants played an incredibly important role in that culture as well. Um, and then, you know, I take readers to different areas where I've worked in the Balkans, across Albania and Kosovo, into the mountains, and then other locations, including here in the state of Georgia, down in some of the the longleaf pine habitats that we have in the southern part of the state. So in a way, it's it's memoir, it's travelogue with a lot of science sprinkled in between. And the goal of the book was really to share this journey, but in a very accessible format, you know, distinct from what I would just normally write in one of the, you know, hundred plus scientific publications I've written in this field already. 
what all right so what is the focus of the book then is it the plants you found or the plants you found that can be medicinal or what is its focus so the the book is a memoir so it's it's a story about my life and the focus is on the discovery of of new ways of treating these infections so i also talk about discovery of new compounds for example that we've isolated from chestnut leaves that interfere with quorum sensing i talk about the discovery of of compounds found in blackberry roots that we've shown to be very effective at interfering with the ways that bacteria stick to surfaces and biofilms um, we talk a little bit about our work on discovery of really the search for other types of inhibitors against different bacteria, but also against um, our fungal targets. And the end of the book is when we really started getting into our work on COVID. Um, and it kind of ends there because that's when I finished the book. And we have a new paper that's in review right now that we hope will be out in a few months that will really, I think, be an exciting look at some of the ways that we are using our chemical library to look for new therapies for different types of, of my, microbial targets. So we've created a library, a chemical library of over 750 species now. We have over close to 2,500 extracts in that library. And we use that as part of our drug discovery platform to not only identify new molecules that could potentially serve as a starting block or like a molecular blueprint for development of new antimicrobials, but also provide insight into how some of these traditional medicines, some of these traditional remedies actually work by getting into the pharmacology and the chemistry and the safety and efficacy of those ingredients. So what were one of the uh, things you discovered that really, I don't know, like what, what amazed you or surprised you or delighted you most that you found that you wrote about in your book? I think that one of the things that was most exciting for me is our work on quorum sensing inhibitors. We've done a lot of work both on um, compounds from chestnut leaves, but also from pepper tree fruits. And we've identified different groups of compounds. So there are these triterpenoid acids that we found in pepper tree and uh, hydroperoxycycloartane from chestnut, but they all work in a similar fashion. Um, when, when bacteria are alone in the body, when they're single cells and they're not near a large population of other single cells, they behave very differently than they do when they're in a large group setting. And so there's kind of this switch to group behavior that typically leads to them coordinating action either towards either towards really settling in a location and forming a biofilm, or in the case of staff, they use those coordinated communications to really upregulate the release of certain toxins that destroy tissues. And so one of the most interesting findings was, you know, the work I was doing on these plants, these are both plants that have been used in traditional medicine, one in Italian medicine, the other in South American traditional medicine. And each of them were used as kind of topical treatments for inflammatory skin disease or for wounds. And yet when you look at how these compounds from these plants behave in a microbiology you know, study, you note right away that they don't really inhibit the growth of bacteria. They don't act like classic antibiotics would. And what was really exciting is that we found that instead of acting like an antibiotic and slowing down the growth or killing the bacterial cells, what these compounds do instead is they interfere with that communication system, that quorum sensing system. And so as a result, what happens is you're basically tricking these 
microbes, these individual bacterial cells into behaving as if they're alone rather than in the presence of a large group or a large cohort. And when you change that behavior, you know, the, the downstream result of that is that they don't produce the kinds of toxins that are so important in the, you know, tissue degradation process and, and causing dermonecrosis of, of, of really, you know, bursting open red blood cells and attacking neutrophils and all these other things that these, that these toxins can do, that's all cycled down. And so when you look at this in an animal model, you know, for example, in a, a kind of a, a superficial skin infection model, what happens is you can inject these high toxin producing strains of staph into the skin with these drugs and they don't actually cause the production or don't lead to the production of a large lesion. Whereas mice that don't have those protective compounds in play get very large, large dermonecrotic lesions that form as a, as a sign of, of, of the toxin production. Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by NeuroBloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. The bacteria you observe when they're alone versus in a biofilm or versus uh, X number of them, you know, that are close to each other in a, in a given micro niche. Like what is the criteria that you've seen where one becomes many and the behavior changes? How many does it take? So when you, when you have bacteria can live in large communities in either planktonic form or kind of free floating form or in biofilm form. So a biofilm is basically where they stick onto a surface, whereas planktonic is they're kind of floating, they're free and loose within a fluidic environment. So normally, and this happens across beyond staff, across basically all microbes communicate in this way. Sometimes they're sending out signals for example, Pseudomonas use these homoserine lactones that, that are important for signaling. And staph, instead, they use autoinducing peptides. But it all, it's just a language. It's their language to one another, right? So they're releasing these chemical signals of, of language. And once you reach a certain density of that signal in the environment, that's when you start to see this upregulation of the system. And so if you're looking at a very simple, if you're looking at a test tube of, you know, where you barely have any turbidity, it's very clear test tube of bacteria growing versus a very turbid, very thick culture of staph. The mate in that thick culture of staph, they're obviously sending out a lot of signal because they're rec- there's, you've got enough cells there um, to have a quorum and, and they're changing their behavior. But in the presence of these compounds that we've isolated from these plants, they don't recognize that the others are there. And as a result, they behave differently in an infection model. 
Well, so, all right. So how do you counteract the activity of bacteria that are in a biofilm? Do you try to induce them to go back into a single stage form of living or do you just have to deal with them as they are? Like what are some of the, the techniques you've come up with based on your observations? Yeah, so biofilms are tricky. A lot of it depends on like the location of the biofilm in the body. So for example, if you have a patient that has a form of staphylococcal endocarditis or these kind of biofilm clusters that are attached to the heart tissue, the worst thing in the world could be possibly to break that biofilm open and disperse it because it could lead to clotting and, and, and strokes and things like that. So the location of the infection is really important. But let's just talk for a moment about how to model this in a laboratory setting. And so what we've looked at and looked for with our library of plant chemicals is for things that can either inhibit the formation of biofilms, so something that you would have as a prophylactic agent at the start. So in high-risk situations, you know, what can we do to reduce the risk of biofilm formation? And the other is, you know, are there examples of biofilm inhibitors that can come in after the biofilm's already been formed and result in dispersion of that biofilm? What we've found so far is a pretty good biofilm inhibitor that works on kind of the before the biofilm is formed stage. We did look at this one. This is again from the blackberry roots. We did, and it's a mixture, by the way, of elagic acid glycosides. And so in the presence of these elagic acid glycosides, which don't inhibit the growth of the staphs, they're able to grow and be happy and merry, but they're just not able to stick to those surfaces in the presence of those compounds. One study that we did a number of years ago um, when I was a postdoc in Mark Smeltzer's lab at um, University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences is we actually formed biofilms onto segments of IV catheter. So the same types of IVs that are used, um, you know, the tubing that's used in patients when you run an IV line. So, yeah, so we grew the biofilm on, on these IV catheters and then basically treated it with a number of different combinations of things. So on one hand, we would treat it with just antibiotics, and including one times the normal dose of antibiotic up to 10 times the normal dose. So 10 times the MIC or the minimum inhibitory concentration. We also tried treating them with the extract from the blackberry alone and then in combination with the antibiotics. And what was really amazing is that you know, the, the plant extract didn't do anything in re removing the biofilm after it was formed and, you know, the cells continued to grow and you really couldn't clear the biofilm off of that um, catheter. However, when you looked at antibiotic treatment alone, it was basically the same again as control. There was very low level inhibition, very difficult to clear that catheter of the biofilm. And this is what we see in the clinic as well. Um, it's really, really difficult to get rid of a biofilm associated um, infection on any kind of medical device. What was most exciting though, is that when we saw, when we looked at the combination of the blackberry extract with antibiotics, and this is again after a number of days of repeated exposure of treatment, it was only when we had those two combined did we start to see larger differences in that were statistically significant in clearing those catheters of the adherent biofilm. And so I think this kind of is an interesting case to show like not only are these, these are very difficult to get to clear, even with our best antibiotics, 
but there are some potential pathways that perhaps biofilm inhibitors could play if delivered in combination with antibiotics. Oh, the, the biofilm inhibitors, though, I mean, I would think in our normal microbiome and our guts and other microbiomes around our body, I mean, are the bacteria free-floating or are they more in biofilms? So if we took something that disturbs biofilms internally with an antibiotic, could it really wreak havoc inside of us? Um, I think it depends on the specificity, right? So how specific is this inhibitor to other organisms? And also, again, as I mentioned, this doesn't work well in breaking up an established biofilm. It's only if it's if it's dosed in combination with an antibiotic. So if you had a commensal microbe that's in a biofilm form in the body that also shares a susceptibility pattern with the same antibiotic, then you might see some disruption um, within the commensals. But we we know already that heavy antibiotic use can lead to pretty serious disruption of the gut microbiome. I think some of the advantages of, of taking these combination therapy approaches with quorum sensing inhibitors and or biofilm inhibitors along with antibiotics could you know potentially lead to a reduction in the the length of therapy or even the dosing of therapies required to achieve your desired um, recovery outcomes. Um, but all of this is still very early. Like we need to do more animal studies. We need to really see how this plays out in different clinical settings as well. So, okay, what what's the method of action of uh, substances that would break up biofilms or inhibit them? Like you gave examples of, you know, what they may be inhibiting, but, um, you know, in, the, in this particular example on the IVs, the catheters, what specifically do you think is happening to inhibit the biofilms? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, if you think about the stages of how a biofilm forms and the disperses, I like to think of it like a little mushroom forest. Okay, so I'm trying to paint a picture for the listeners here. So you have this free-floating cells in in the body, and they're floating around the body through your bloodstream until they come across, for example, a medical device. So maybe it's a knee replacement, or maybe it's an IV catheter. And when they encounter that device, you know, that's a good place for them to latch on. And so that early phase is like the early adhesion phase where they use their surface proteins. So their little proteins exposed on the outside of the cells, these bacteria, they use those to kind of link on to the surface. And then they begin to do what they like to do. They start to divide and they start to increase in number. And so from this one little cell that's attached, all of a sudden you have more and more and more that form um, until you get almost, if you can imagine like, you know, what mushroom caps look like, like this little mushroom forest that are, that are in these areas with at the base of the mushrooms, you have where you would think of like a stem in the shape of, in the shape of these, of these communities, you have channels with fluid. And so as they go through the maturation cycles, you have attachment, accumulation, and then kind of maturation. They form, you have these channels formed through the the little mushroom forest where they can get rid of their waste and they can also acquire nutrients. And it's in that kind of environment as well, where they can have heightened gene exchange and they also change their rate of metabolism. Antibiotics work really well on rapidly dividing cells. This is one of the the ways that they evade antibiotic activity as well. And so your question was, where do we think that these 
biofilm inhibitors, these lactic acid glycosides from the black puree roots are working. Based on what we've found so far, and we've done a lot of studies looking at different genes that we know are responsible for control of, of a number of these steps in the biofilm process, we believe that it actually has the most relevance in that early adhesion stage. So it helps to um, prevent them from that from from really using those surface exposed proteins to adhere to the surfaces. So what kind of insights does this give you on the interaction of bacteria and how they, you know, decide or use some kind of quorum sensing to go in and out of biofilm mode? Like have there been any substances that you found that it doesn't seem to hurt them, but it, it puts them back in free form version and breaks up a biofilm only? Yeah, so we haven't found anything that really does that yet, that takes them from that well-established biofilm community and forces them back into free-form planktonic growth. We have not identified any chemicals that do that yet, but we have lots of you know compounds that we haven't tested yet as well. So, yeah, we haven't gotten to, we haven't found anything that works that way. So, what do you think are going to be the the big breakthroughs in your understanding of, of bacteria and biofilms? Is it going to be more of um you know needle in a haystack trying thousands of compounds and this one happens to stop them from doing X or Y? Or is there another method um, where you can understand the mechanisms by which they, again, go in and out of biofilm mode and, you know, what causes them to change, et cetera. And, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe there's a heuristic that could be developed uh, to find compounds or narrow it down. What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's some amazing basic microbiology labs that focus on exactly those questions of understanding the genetics and the the specific mechanisms of going from A to Z of going through that entire maturation cycle from adhesion through accumulation and, and maturation, and then eventually to dispersion um, because dispersal is also an important part to that phase. That is not what we do in my lab. My lab is focused on early stage drug discovery. So we use tools that others have developed through model systems to identify compounds to really test those models. You, you find a lot of advancement in the fields of like looking at quorum sensing and in biofilm studies where you have these large, you know, um, bacterial mutant libraries that have been developed where certain genes are knocked out. And as those genes are knocked out, they're then queried to see how that impacts certain virulence factors such as biofilm or quorum sensing um, steps. And so, but what those often lack are the small molecule inhibitors that can target those. And so that's where we come in. Now, the areas where I think we're going to have the most impact is really more, you know, yes, in the biofilm space, we're, and we have um, a translational application in process right now where we've outlicensed the, the anti-biofilm technology to another company to Firefly Innovations, who's developing it as part of their, um, of a kind of a eco-friendly, all-natural medicated bandage to treat patients that have these chronic non-healing wounds. And the area that I'm really putting a lot more of my attention right now in my lab is on the quorum sensing side of things, because we know that these the production of virulence factors, especially toxins that are hemolytic or like lice blood cells, are really important to progression of a number of diseases ranging from, you know, staphylococcal pneumonia to, you know, contributing to sepsis and also to really contributing to disease severity in um conditions like atopic dermatitis or eczema. I'm in the dermatology department. And so one of my big interests is in looking for 
you know, novel solutions to treating eczema that aren't dependent upon steroid-based therapies or immune-modulating therapies, which is um, often the current standard of care. And so some of the work that we've done, we've shown that not only do children that are, that have moderate to severe eczema, not only are they colonized with high levels of staph, but the strains of staph that they are colonized with are exceptionally proficient at producing very high levels of toxins. And so at the same time, we have our translational work where we have identified inhibitors, again, of those quorum sensing pathways in particular of genes like the AGR gene or the accessory gene regulator gene. That's important, you know, to regulating a whole suite of toxins. So in addition to the hemolytic toxins, there are other toxins it also regulates. And so that's where we have a very good understanding of what's happening mechanistically. And I think we also have a pretty clear pathway to translation. And and that's kind of what we're trying to push forward right now. And I'm really excited about, about the trajectory on that project. So what's, um, what do you think are going to be some of the breakthroughs, hopefully, from your work or others that are doing similar stuff to you in the next couple of years? What are the big key things that need to be figured out? I mean, I think I think that we're going to see a greater greater advancements in these kind of antivirulence approaches to infection, not not necessarily displacing antibiotics, but perhaps being explored more as adjuvants to antibiotics in the clinic. And I think that's that's probably where we're going to see the biggest breakthrough in the kind of work that I'm doing. Okay, very good. Well, Cassandra, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Yeah, they can find me online. So they can go to CassandraQuave.com for my author website. I've also got a weekly newsletter that I put out to that gives folks a behind the scenes look at all the cool stuff that the students in my lab are doing. I also have our research website, which is etnobotanica.us. It's E-T-N-O-B-O-T-A-N-I-C-A.us. And I can also be found on Twitter and Instagram at Quave Ethnobot. If they're interested in learning more and kind of just more around the science of food and health, I have a podcast called the Foodie Pharmacology Podcast. It's one of the top ranked food science podcasts out there. Um, we've got lots of great guests, including Nobel laureates, Pulitzer Prize winning authors, um, really cool scientists from many different fields. Um, to check out. And lastly, I have a YouTube channel called Teach Ethnobotany, um, where you can find lots of educational videos for free on that channel um, to learn more about kind of the importance of nature to our health and to well-being. And lastly, of course, a, a pitch for my book, The Plant Hunter, is coming out in um, paperback uh, this June. So we have the hard copy out now. It's also available as an audiobook and an ebook. I'm glad you did it as an audiobook. I know some people, uh, you know, would prefer to listen versus read, but that's really cool. Yeah. Um, one, one last question about that. Uh, I don't know if you've been to enough sites. Do plants that heal common problems that people have tend to exist near them? You know, if I'm in sub-Saharan Africa, will I have plants that can help me heal, you know, basic things that go wrong with me? And at the same time, you know, someone that lives in, uh, you know, North America, will they tend to have different plants? that could do similar jobs existing and growing near them. Did you notice that or is that not the case? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, here's the ama- here's an amazing number for you. We have around 374,000 species of plants on earth and around 33,000 of those or 9% of all plant life has been documented as having medicinal applications in different cultures. So 
anywhere that humans have existed on earth, they're using local plants as medicines. And the grand majority of these have never been evaluated by scientists. So yes and yes, there's, there's lots of plants wherever you are that are used by locals for medicine. And we still know very little about them from a scientific perspective. Okay. Well, very good. Cassandra, you're in, a, in an unusual space and a very cool space, I think, in terms of exploration that you're doing. So, thank you. you know, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been really cool. Thanks so much. Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by NeuroBloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.